I would also start looking for a lot of other businesses that are on the market and try to understand as best I could, what are the things that make the escape room business successful? One of the, th- one of the reasons why we were able to get a $26 million exit on the business was because when I got serious about selling, I started to look at... Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. Raleigh Williams. What's up, buddy? What's up, bro? How's it going, man? It's going awesome. Shout out to the homie, Nick Gray. Shout out to the homie for introducing us. That was probably one of the better meetups that I've ever, I typically avoid those things because like I can tend to be a wallflower. I'm not like massively extroverted, but Nick did an amazing job. Yeah, dude, you're ugly. Shuffling people too. around. Yeah. Hard to look at, socially awkward. I know. Like he I was just... in the, he's in the corner of the kitchen picking his nose, and all of us were like, <laughs> okay, we'll talk to this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for bringing me in. I appreciate the kindness. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> yeah. For those that aren't familiar, Nick Gray, he was on this podcast, and we had him as a guest. He has a book called The Two Hour Cocktail Party. So his whole shtick is he throws these small, intimate gatherings with people that he privately invites, and he's got a knack for bringing in really interesting people and bringing us together. So when he invites you to a party, he sends an entire guest list and he'll do bios for each and every person. And so you can see who's going to the party. And so what happened was I got invited to the party. Same thing as Raleigh. I was just like, ah, do I want to go? Because I had other things to do. And yeah. I was like, same as you. I said, you know what? Might as well. And I checked out the guest list and it had sold escape room business for $26 million. <laughs> yeah. And I said, mm-hmm. what? I was like, escape room <laughs> business. I was like, this is interesting. And then we ended up linking up, rowing out. And now here we are, man. And now we get to talk to thousands of people. So thanks for coming on, buddy. Thanks for having me, man. It'll be good. I'm excited. Yeah, me too, man. First, before we get into the escape rooms, the axe throwing, the party center businesses that you were acquiring, what are you up to today? How do you introduce yourself today? Today, I introduce myself as the CEO of DealMaven.io, which is an acquisition basically a growth equity firm for digital and coaching businesses. So we'll go and find people that have great coaching businesses or digital products and buy a majority stake in them and then help them go from a coaching business or a digital business that's usually a really good cash flow machine, but doesn't have a great end game in place. And we'll kind of pivot the business to the model that makes the most sense to increase the exit value the most. So that's what I'm doing now. Cool. And so that's essentially a 180 pivot from the brick and mortar party businesses that you were doing previously. So what caused the pivot? What made you go digital before we get into your upbringing here? Yeah, totally. So it's when I was running the trampoline park business, my wife had a coaching business that she did fitness coaching on Instagram. And so she was so that's how I got my first exposure into that world. We joined we were like, we were, she had this Instagram audience that was 
that always would buy her stuff, but we didn't really have any systems or processes in place in terms of how to turn it into a real business. And so I started going to digital marketing conferences and stuff like ClickFunnels stuff as a way to try to figure out what that business looked like. And, and so I was doing that in parallel at the same time that I was running the trampoline parks in the escape room business. And she actually got sick for a time. She had breast cancer. And so for 18 months, her business kind of was put on, put on pause. It was going from 60, 70 grand a month in like just profit that she was doing from her Instagram channel to zero. And, and it helped me see a problem in that kind of digital coaching space that a lot of these people start these great businesses that, but they're so encrusted at the center of it and they don't really know a great way to get themselves out of it. And so I got exposure to that with my wife and going through those issues. And I like businesses where there's not a lot of competition in the acquisition world. I like finding things that in the acquisition space, once you can get a loan on something, once the SBA knows how to value it or private money knows what the asset is worth, then a lot of the like outsized return is already pulled away from that kind of asset type. And so I thought it was interesting that no one was really out there making offers to buy into these companies because there's such such a key man risk. And I felt comfortable that knowing enough about the operator and structuring a deal in a way that makes sure that everyone, you know, is on the same page, that there's a way to buy in, eliminate the key man risk together and turn it into a real asset. I love that you say that. And also for people listening, the key man risk is essentially where you have the operator is the face of the business. Like the operator is the business. So without the operator, there is no business. So an excuse can be made like that. That would be my main weakness and my core thing is would Action Academy podcast, would my Action Academy like community continue on without me, Brian Lubin, host the Action sure. Academy? Right. So that that's something that I'm conscious and cognizant of while I'm building my business as well. So that's very interesting. So I want to really dive deep into that in the back half of the show. But first, I want to begin with your journey out of corporate America. So people may see you and they say, okay, he buys digital course, coaching courses, businesses, stuff like that. that's cool. That's some internet money stuff. What's this guy know about my story, my struggles, my pain? Okay. Yeah. So you've been through the ringer, man. And so I want to, I want you to take us back. So you got you, your corporate career actually began with something that is very useful to you. Now you built skill sets. So what were you before and walk us through your corporate career? Okay. Yeah, sure. So I was, I, I started as a lawyer doing mergers and acquisitions. So that's the buying and selling of companies, typically public companies, or when a company needs to do a fundraising round as mergers and acquisitions and capital markets. So dealing with IPOs, additional rounds of financing for the biggest companies and private equity firms in the world. I practiced law in New York and Dallas for nine months total. Right when I started uh, the first deal that I was ever put on was it's called an S1, which is a document that you have to prepare when a company is wanting to go public. It's like how they tell the market about their business, what all the risks are, why they should invest. And and just that that first deal, I was like, I'd gone to a pretty good law school. I'd spent most of my late teens and early 20s pretty sure that I wanted to be a lawyer. It was like, it's impressive when you tell people in college that you're going to go to law school and you're going to go to a good law school. And 
So I never really spent much time wondering whether I would like practicing law or not. My dad is a lawyer. I have siblings that are lawyers. And I went to a much bigger firm than they had ever practiced at. And the first deal, I was like, I hate this. This is horrible. (laughs) And I thought maybe I was in the wrong practice area. So I went from mergers and acquisitions to then real estate. And I worked at in a real estate group, which is like working on billion dollar plus mortgage agreements, real estate, private equity firms. And I hated that too. I think the thing that I hated the most about law, working at a big law firm is when I was in law school, I took a class and the professor had made a lot of money in real estate. And what he said was in your twenties, the most important thing that you can learn is to get as close as you can to someone who's a professional risk taker. And I was around all of these lawyers that were professional risk mitigators for other people. They found ways to eliminate as much risk as you possibly can out of a deal through documentation and diligence, whatever. But none of them, I was always really surprised because these are all guys that went to Harvard Law, Stanford. They went to the best schools that you could possibly go to. They're some of the smartest people that I was ever around, but they were so terrified of ever taking a risk for themselves, putting their own skin in, in a game that it just, it felt like I was wasting my time and I didn't want to, I didn't want to spend any more time than I had to, because I was worried that I was going to become like them and I was, I would be too scared to take my own risks. And so within the first few months, I found this article on Market Watch that was called the unbelievably lucrative business of escape rooms. I'd never heard of escape rooms before. I'd never done an escape room, but when I saw that article, I thought maybe this is something that could be interesting. Maybe this is something that I could do. And so I started going to escape rooms in Dallas where I was practicing law. And what I would do was I would go onto the website of these escape rooms every single morning and I would look at how many bookings they had for the day. And I would just basically put in an Excel spreadsheet. First, first thing when I got into the office every single day, I would see how many bookings they had the night before and that day. And then I would, I could basically back into how much revenue they were all making. And so as I did that for a couple months, I was like, oh shit, these guys like make like pretty decent money. Like I thought, I thought that the average escape room business where I was in Dallas was making like a million, maybe 1.2 million bucks a year. And then I went to each of the rooms and I like, I tried to back in as best as I could. I was like, okay, they have like paint on a wall. That's $12 and they have carpet. So that's cool. I was just trying to back into what it would cost to build one of these things and what rent would be. So I just tried to get to what the business model looked like as close as I could. And it penciled out for me that it would make sense. And so I convinced a buddy of mine that was working at KPMG, a big accounting firm, and my brother who had been working at Goldman Sachs, we all decided that we should do this escape room thing together. We all had ties to Utah. My wife is from Utah. And after a couple months of modeling it out, we found a space that made sense and and we went for it. We put 200 grand in between the partners and then got a $50,000 loan from a brother of mine and we just started dude holy crap so (laughs) a big four consultant a banker and an ivy league lawyer walk into a bar (laughs) they walk they walk into an escape room room and the timer starts yeah and they decide to buy it so i'm first (laughs) off there's a couple of things i want to dissect from that point but i'm just getting a visual of you of them being like who the hell is this guy? This Riley guy <laughs> keeps coming by himself to this escape room over and over again. Like it's Tuesday afternoon. Why is yeah. this guy back? Does he have friends? <laughs> like, no. Yeah. I've 
I've never been bashful about modeling and pulling as much information as I could out of businesses. So I would go in, I was, I was friends with all of the employees and I'd be like, was this a busy night? When, when, it, when are you the busiest? Like how do corporate events do? Like how many corporate events did you have this week? And employees, um, even owners a lot of time, they're not thinking someone is trying to mine information from me. They're thinking, oh, this is this. They're thinking, oh, someone's just interested in what I'm doing and they'll talk. And I've never, I've never like straight rip something from somebody, but I was trying to get, I was trying to, I was doing the lawyer thing and tried to mitigate my risk as much as possible. And even mm-hmm. pulling it forward to today, when I look at a company to acquire and I get the SIM and I'm talking to the banker or the broker or whatever, I go and secret shop as best I can. If it's a, if it's a internet business, I'll buy the product. If it's a brick and mortar thing, then I'll go in and I'll spend time with the employees and really get like boots on the ground away from financial statements or what it says on a piece of paper, what a broker saying. And I'll, I'll get to the down and dirty of what's actually happening in the business because it's the only way that you really know what you're getting yourself into. Yeah. The reason for me pointing that out, jokes aside, is you guys are all like the most risk averse personality types and the most risk averse characters with your jobs and your corporate careers. And you possess what I like to call the action muscle. And I think the action muscle is the one key muscle that that separates the successful versus the unsuccessful. And that is, what's the period of time between when you have an idea and when you act on it? So the shorter the period of time, the shorter the trigger, then the more successful those people are. So I possess that muscle. So for this podcast, I had an idea. Somebody said, you should start a podcast. And I said, absolutely, I should. And I just did it the next day. And totally. I just started the podcast. And that's how I operate my life. And now I run a business where I help corporate people transition into entrepreneurship. And some people don't, that muscle doesn't come naturally to them. So what's some advice that you can give to people to build this action muscle to where you see a freaking article in market watch and you say, yeah, that I'll do that. That's my thing. Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people have a hard time like understanding sunk costs. I, I used to sunk cost fallacy. Yep. I, when I, when I started opening up and talking about my story, leaving law and doing the escape room business a couple of years ago, I would have lawyers or bankers or people in professional services that would reach out and want to have a conversation about what they should do to start something. And they, when I got into law, once I realized that law was very different than what my expectation of it was going into it, I was willing to revisit all of my assumptions. And a lot of people that spend 300 grand to go to an Ivy League law school, they're like, I'm beholden to that 300 grand that I've spent. I'm pot committed to this path that I set out to do as a 22 year old. And I will continue to ride that until something massive disrupts my life. And I've just never, I've been totally okay to take all of the past investment to zero and like reassess things based on the information that I know today. And so there've been businesses that I've had 200, 250, 300 grand into to try to start. And six months in, we're like, yo, this is very, if I knew what I knew today, I wouldn't continue this business. So let's take the L and let's shut it down and let's move on to the next thing. But there's also the people that have high opportunity costs because they're in a job that pays them very well, but they hate it. Those people tend to have a hard time 
they just have a hard time resetting their lives and getting back to the foundational pieces and rebuilding from foundations. And it, you get stuck in the, like the inertia of the path that you've picked and you quit assessing whether you want to continue on this path. I think it happens in jobs. It happens in marriages. It happens in, in a lot of areas that like it will require a massive amount of new energy. But what else do you have to do <laughs> like that? Yeah, this is no, like the, the core piece of your life. And if it's work related and money related, that's how you spend 60 to 70 percent of your waking time. And so figuring out a way and they build all these straw man arguments of I can't quit my job. And so what else am I supposed to do? Start a side hustle, like figure out some alternate path. Like it doesn't have to be it. Just test every assumption that you have. I was at the gym two days ago with a guy who's got a PhD in computer science and he's 43 years old and he wants to do his own thing, but he doesn't know. He, his thing was, I don't have the idea yet. I don't know. I don't know what idea I should execute on. And I told him that like the, the lack of, the lack of an idea is like almost a perfect alibi for inaction. Like it's the perfect reason to not do something. But at the end of the day, if you do anything, like I didn't come up with an escape room idea. Like it's like, oh, there's demand there. I'll do that then. That's if people want it. Great. It was never the thing. It was never the thing that I felt was going to build my empire on, which is why I figured out a way to sell it. Cause I, I never really got into it as a thing that like. I really loved. It was just like an opportunity that seemed like it was feasible and I could wrap my head around how to make money on it. So I went for it. And so I think, I think people just get stuck in their own narrative and aren't willing to like reassess, accept the fact that they made a mistake with a career choice or a job choice or whatever. And I think once you once you have the courage to re retest those ideas, I think that opens you up for a whole world of new opportunities that like ends up being the foundation of the next stage of what you want to do. A hundred percent, man, really well said. And it's a million dollar question. It's a billion dollar question to answer is how do you shorten the time span between idea and execution between information and implementation? You have a quote that I really like that says, find a business that meets existing demand and trends, not an innovative idea for your first business. I love that. That's exactly what you just said. And it's what we talk about a lot. So I talk about this concept called passionate income, which is what you're getting more close to now with what you're doing. So it's when you have enough money coming in already passively or from your other ventures to where you're not really doing things for the money as much anymore. You're just more so asking, how can I make money in a way that's most fun for me and most complementary mm-hmm. to my skill sets? It's the, yeah. what the Japanese call your ikigai, your guy, where it's sure. the intersection of what the market wants, yeah, which you can make money for, and what you're great at. Yeah. yeah. And so it's funny that you say that because I feel people are waiting for the confidence to take action, but your story perfectly illustrates that the action is what yields the confidence. Totally. The confidence to get the act to take the action. And people are waiting for this new sexy idea, this new sexy thing, like they're gonna get struck by lightning. When the reality is I think they just need to do something by figure out one real estate strategy to implement on, to build enough passive, to earn the right to be able to go figure out what you're passionate about and what your thing is. And I wanted to use that as a pretty cool segue because what you were talking about, sorry, I have to unpack. You just went on a freaking genius tangent, dude. So I took a <laughs> bunch of notes. So you, you talked about sunk cost fallacy, which is the process of climbing this mountain of life 
And then you get to this boulder and you realize that the only way to make it to the mountaintop is to go all the way back down where you started mm-hmm. from and take another path. Sure. This is what fucks people up over and over again because they're mm-hmm. unwilling to go back down the mountain. But the journey of climbing the mountain for you, you acquired skill sets and you acquired all of this information. I call it paying the stupid tax. Like it's failing yeah. forward. I've done it in my business too. And then now you've got all this pool of information that makes you better and stronger for the next thing. And it makes you become the type of person that's ready for the next thing, which is operating in your zone of genius, which is mergers mm-hmm. and acquisition now. Can you talk totally. a little bit about having a business that's complementary to the skill sets that you've built up and maybe taking time to step back and appreciate the journey and the skill sets that you're building along the way instead of just writing it off as a mess up and a failure? Yeah, I think I think a lot of times people don't know a lot of times it's hard to get context on how good you are at something because you tend to build a community around someone who's like-minded. And so sometimes it's good to get a completely outside perspective and (laughs) be around people that don't have, that aren't working on the same thing as you for the, for the first couple of years of me running the trampoline park and the escape room business, I was pretty pissed about, I was pretty pissed at myself for spending as much time and money focusing on being a lawyer because it felt like it it felt like it was just a waste of time. It felt like I was doing something that was so far afield from like the path that I thought that I wanted to do as a 22 year old that it it felt like I just, I went into this cul-de-sac and I needed to just extract that from my story and kind of start over and do something completely different. And I think on a long enough time horizon, I've found a lot of gratitude for all of the things that have felt like missteps or get wandering into cul-de-sacs that never really led into anything. I think I've tried to be more reflective on, on what I could glean from that on a going forward basis, whether it was a lot of times I've learned for myself that I almost have, I'm almost too impetuous. Like I, I almost act too quickly without getting organized and getting my ducks in a row and really dedicate giving myself enough resources and patience to really see something through to success. And I think, and, and almost in most things like you, you either have to find the counterbalance yourself or partner with someone that can act as that counterbalance. And, and so when I was running the trampoline park business, my brother who I was running it with tended to be more go action. And I was the kind of the lawyer, more like reserve. Hey, let's do this in a smart way. Let's build the model in a way that makes sense. And then in other partnerships that I've had since then, I tend to be the more go and I have partners that are a little bit more reserved and make sure that things are getting done the right way and a little bit more attentive to detail. And so I think I've spent more time, I've spent more time after selling that company and also going through some more personal things. I had, I have three kids. My wife went through a pretty heavy health concern that put the career on pause for a year while we were working through it. And, and I think I, my nature is to go. And so it was nice for me to have that counterbalance time to have something that naturally required me to pause and stop for a bit. I think if someone who is more naturally less oriented towards action, it sounds like maybe there are some of those people in your audience, I think just trying an experiment, right? It doesn't have to be the thing that you do for the rest of your life. Just try on being like 
buy a domain this weekend, right? Buy a domain and pay somebody on Fiverr a grand to put a website up for you or do whatever Brian says in terms of the best path to get started. Buy a single family house flip, whatever it is. I was about to say, be careful telling people (laughs) to buy a domain and and an LLC, man. That ain't bringing in dollars. (laughs) No, not an LLC. You don't need to set up the entity, but just do try doing something and then and learn what the things are that have a high that have the highest percentage of return whatever that is in terms of the side hustle land or whatever yeah and just try on doing the exact opposite of what you've done thus far and see if see if there's something that can happen in that and letting the pendulum swing the other way a little bit sure yeah i tell people life is like a food court at a mall and people think they need to sit down and make a reservation for this four-course dinner, this four-course meal that's super super expensive, and you book it like months in advance. I'm like, dude, go to the food court. Try the chicken, try the beef, try the seafood. Totally. <laughs> Chick-fil-A. Oh my God, I yeah. love this. Like, yep. get down there, eat there. You're trying the free samples. That's more so how life works. We just do what's called, we just have that fallacy to where we think that binary thinking, where we think it's either this or that, that or this. And there's no in-between, sure. but life, life is the gray area in between, always. And it's funny because your story is exactly like mine, where it's, I wasn't an M&A lawyer, but I was in corporate sales for the first five years of my career. That's what I did. I was a corporate sales rep and I made it to the top of the company. So I learned B2B sales. So I could sit across from a CFO of a Fortune 100 and ink a national deal. And I know what that SOP looks like. I know what that MSA looks like. I know what the paperwork and the process looks like, the buyers and everything. And so that was the skill set of sales. Then I launched a podcast and I became an affiliate for all these different coaching and mastermind services that I was using. I just happened to share it on the show and it became like, I was talking to people about it all the time. I was like, Hey, yeah, I'd highly recommend this mastermind or highly recommend this coaching. And this all led down the road for me just buying boring houses, sticks and bricks at my food court to years later. Now I've got my business that I'm super passionate about. I wake up every day on fire to get to work and it's a combination of all the skills that I learned along the way from totally. all the different things. It's the exact same as your story, man. It's so cool how it always like you have these patterns that go up in every podcast and every sure. single story that you hear. That's they're universal. I, I love business books, but one of the best non-business books that I usually recommend, particularly for someone who's trying to figure out what the consistent thread is in their life and what their story is. And there's a couple of them. And I've spent a lot of time, I've spent a lot of time on this because I've been pretty natural. Like I'm pretty naturally a logical thinker, not like a massively passion driven, like I love X, Y, Z. And so I've had to read a lot about finding your passion because it wasn't something that came like massively natural, naturally to me. And so I read The Alchemist by, it's like a, it's a short book. It's two hours. It's like a little parable-esque. I read it like legit once a quarter to just reorient myself. And I try to pay attention to what are the things that I feel like I'm maybe forcing that aren't catching the way that they, that the way that I anticipated them to versus what are the things that, that feel like fun for me. And that's been a hard, that's been like, that's been something that I've had to learn. I've had to learn how to orient myself towards fun and enthusiasm because Ivy League law school, big law firm. No one's talking about you should no about do fun? what's fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, there's not a class. And, there's not fun and like, and the metric of success is how complex a subject is or how complex a deal is. And like your ability to na- navigate complex subject matter 
is much more important than whether you enjoy it or not. And so anyway, I think coming from some of those skills of accounting or banking or finance or where it's like less people, it's less about building relationships with people and more about subject matter and mastering subject matter. I've had to, again, learn and be willing to invest in myself to go through that that process. Most of my most of my buddies that spent a couple hundred grand on law school, like they can't fathom the idea of spending twenty five grand for a mastermind or a course or something that could potentially change their lives because they're just like, my investment in myself is done. I've invested enough, and I'm never yeah. investing again. And so it's if you have to put you have to continue to put skin in your own game and your own future, and continue to try to figure out what the next right step is. Yeah, 100% agree. And it's a difficult threshold to walk through in the beginning. But I recommend people start with something like start start small. But just from my personal opinion, I think that until you get to a certain level, it makes much more sense for you to just invest in yourself. If you have $10,000 or $20,000, and you're trying to invest in the S&P 500 or index yeah, funds or totally, something. Totally. I'm like, dude, let's not invest $10,000 to get 7% return. Let's, For sure. let's figure out like who to pay $10,000 to learn a skill that makes you $100,000 a year. Totally. So on that point, I'd like to use that as a transition really quickly. If we could talk about the actual tactics and the process of buying a business okay. uh, for people that are maybe have some cash and they are seeing something like an escape room or a trampoline park or a small business down the street in one of the strip malls. What does that process look like? If you could walk us through that step-by-step for somebody that's maybe sitting on fifty, hundred, two hundred thousand dollars $200,000 of cash, they hate their jobs and they're like, you know what? I want to go do this business that meets the existing demand and trends. It's not going to be the sexy, innovative idea, but I want to buy something. Speaking sure. of which, I have Walker Dribble who wrote Buy Not Build come yeah. on Thursday. So this is a perfect segue for that. Yeah, Walker's a badass. I've never talked to him individually, but I read Buy Them Build which is a great book. And I think the important, probably the keystone for me on business acquisition stuff is twofold. One is try to understand what your circle of competence is. What's the known universe that you really understand and that you are really good at? Trampoline. And a lot, yeah, it, for me, I felt very comfortable. There's, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything about escape rooms, although it became something that I felt very competent in. But I knew a lot about leases because that's a, that's a pillar of the brick and mortar game. And I was a real estate lawyer. So I felt very comfortable with the lease. And I also felt very comfortable with with the model that we had built because I spent a lot of time really trying to understand what was happening in the escape room world, which is a weird thing. But so I, I think circle of competence. And then the other thing that I tell people in the acquisition world is you should only do deals where if you're right, you get rich. And if you're wrong, you don't go broke. And that was a concept that I learned from a billionaire that I used to do deals for in M&A and making sure that you don't overextend yourself and get yourself in a situation where you could lose everything if you're wrong. When I started, I quit law when I was 26 years old. And so luckily I didn't have much to lose. I always felt like I could either go and get a business school degree or go back and work at a law firm. And it was important to me that there wasn't a lot of debt on the business. Like a lot of times business acquisitions, you are trying to bring SBA loans in or yeah, other 10%. type of... 
or personally guaranteed loans. And I think it's important that you don't put yourself in a position that you can lose everything if you're if the economy changes or things that are outside of your control don't happen. I know if you talk to a broker, they'll say the default rates on an SBA loan are sub 5%. So they tend to be pretty safe just based off of the coverage ratios and all that stuff that they do in order to make sure that the asset can pay for it. But I think understanding what you are good at is the first thing. And if I found a, if I found an escape room business that I was really interested in my backyard, I would also do, I would also start looking for a lot of other escape room businesses that are on the market and try to understand as best I could, what are the things that make the escape room business successful. One of the th- one of the reasons why we were able to get a twenty six million dollar exit on the business was because when I got serious about selling, I started to look at every trampoline park business, every escape room business that was for sale. I would download their confidential investment memorandum, basically all the data room about how they're trying to sell the business, sure. and I found that there was one trampoline park business that sold for a 9x when most trampoline parks businesses sell for a 2 or 3x. So if a business is, if a trampoline park is making a million bucks, then most of the time the market will pay $3 million for that deal. There was one trampoline park business that sold for basically $9 million on that million dollars of cash flow example. And so then I asked the banker why were they selling for basically three times the exit multiple of any anything else and he said because they had built into their business a membership model. So it wasn't just you come and you jump for an hour and then you leave, but you pay for a monthly membership to be a part of it. And they had recurring revenue in the business. And then they installed that in the business with a long enough time horizon. So that way the buyer knew what the churn rate looked like, what the member stick rate is, all of that stuff that it's really hard to do in a brick and mortar kind of one-off deal. And so because of that, because I learned that, I didn't come up with that idea, but I knew what the market paid for that idea. And so then I put it into my business. <laughs> no yep. new, nothing new under the sun in Raleigh Williams's world. If, if it's worked somewhere else, then I'll do it. If it hasn't worked somewhere else, I don't want to be the guinea pig. And, and because of that, we were able to get a higher multiple on exit than we otherwise would have. And so if I were going into an acquisition, when I look to buy coaching businesses, The first thing that I do after somebody says, hey, I'd like for you to invest in my business is I try to understand what business they're in right now. So my last one was a pharmacy business that teaches pharmacists how to do precision medicine. And so I went out into the marketplace on brokerage sites and Google pharmacy business for sale or pharmacy business sold or precision medicine business for sale, precision medicine business sold. And I just try to get an understanding of what were the businesses that were in this category that sold for an attractive multiple and what did they do different than everybody else? And is there a path forward on this business that I'm potentially going to invest into to make this business look like that business? And if I can make it look like that business, then I can sell for the same thing that they sold for all things being equal. And so I like going into things, knowing what my exit strategy looks like. So that way I know how I can get out of this thing. And there's only a couple of ways to get out. Either either you make the business profitable enough that someone else can operate it, or you sell it, or you go public, which is unlikely, or you shut it down, or you die. Yeah. At, at one point, you're going to get out of this business. 
even if did it's you, dead. did you sell to private equity or a strategic buyer? We sold we we sold to so it took us nine different transactions. So we didn't sell on one fell swoop. So we sold the real estate to a real estate private equity firm. We sold the escape room business to a strategic haunted house operator. We sold a couple of the trampoline parks to SBA buyers, and then a couple of the trampoline parks to a roll-up group that was just getting started with a YouTube influencer. And cool. so be- because of the way that we built the business, um, we didn't build it with an exit in mind. And so exiting out of it became its own escape room that I had to get out of. It, it became a, it's a little complex in terms of how to get it done. And Thank God um, you're an M&A. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was like, it. I don't, yeah. And so I've learned, I did it wrong, even having done it professionally for a period of time. And luckily, you know, COVID wasn't great for that business, but we, so that kind of prolonged our time that we needed to stay in the business to really make it work. Sure. And, and so it was a tandem of a couple different buyers in order to really get the exit value that we wanted to get out of it. Cool. So if anybody's still listening to this podcast, it means that you're not only in real estate, but you love the game of business too. So far, like I said, I've bored because I've bored the rest of them. What do you mean if anybody's still listening? It's terrible, dude. It's terrible. No, it's uh, this has been fantastic. But a a key point. So I also interviewed John Warlow, who was author of Built to Sell. Yeah. So he not only came on the show and gave away all of his secrets, but then he coached me on my business for three hours afterwards, which is a cool reason to have a podcast. There's the pitch for you guys to start your own podcast. And MRR is king, monthly recurring revenue. Like people will pay. And he was even talking about the example of an HVAC business where the actual replacements themselves, if that revenue was valued at 72 cents on the dollar, whereas the insurance programs that they were offering to their customers, which was MRR, that was selling for a dollar seventy per dollar of revenue yeah. for a multiple. So it was just so cool. And now I implemented that in my business. So all of the people that are in Action Academy listen to the podcast. And so how I changed the pricing model was it used to just be you pay this and you're in for the year. You pay this, you're in for the year. And then I changed it to, all right, this is up front. And then you pay monthly, a low monthly fee afterwards. And what it did is it accomplished so many things. So first you have the upfront, which helps with the marketing. So it eliminates the customer acquisition cost. And then you've got MRR coming in. And also it makes it like, I think that for businesses with that, it's more advantageous for you to make the process of leaving easy rather Mm -hmm. than difficult. Because then your customers are happier, you're happier. And this process makes it like, hey... If they're eight months in and they're like, this is the worst thing ever. and This isn't for me that I want it to make be like a very easy path to say, oh, OK, you're paying monthly. It's OK. Let's cut it right here. Totally. <laughs> yeah. As opposed to the opposite, which people think is the best practice, which is let me make it as difficult as humanly possible for people to leave my business. I don't think that's true. What would your opinion be? Yeah, I think you have a lot of reputational damage that happens there. Right. If you if you have if you make it very difficult for people to leave. I think the other the other thing and built to sell is a great book. The book that I'm working on right now is about how you take a creative endeavor where there's a a face and a personality that's at the center of it and turn that into a sellable business. And I read um, that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would too. Unfortunately, I just have to write it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Jokes on you guys. I don't know how to read. <laughs> Riley, where so who do you serve today? And where can people find you? And if this is list your customer so that somebody that's listening to this can be like, 
oh, okay, I am doing this. I have this problem. I should reach out to Raleigh. Sure. My, my, I, the people that I try to talk to are people that own businesses that aren't sure the process of making them sellable, trying to go from an entrepreneur running a business to an investor that owns an asset is the thing that we try to solve as best we can. And then additionally to that, when we have deals that are live, we'll bring in limited partners. So we run the deal and we we bring in outside investment into the deals if it makes sense. So those are the two. If you got at least a hundred grand that you want to put into a deal that we do, or if you own a business that you'd like to turn into an asset, those are the two kind of groups that we talk to at Deal Maven. Do you have a minimum revenue? On we have minimum EBITDA, so we won't do anything that's under five hundred grand and trailing twelve months EBITDA. Okay. We've done some smaller ones and they work out like they work out great. The investors are doing amazing. It's just a lot more work on our side. So we've continued to bring the drawbridge up a little bit every time that we do a deal and going bigger and bigger each time just because you're solving the same stuff, but there's just more there's more infrastructure in place to make sure that it's stable and it looks it's already closer to an asset. So there's less work to do and there's more meat on the bone to pass around. Love it. So where can people find you? Twitter is probably where I individually am most active. The Raleigh Will. I have a podcast called the Deal Maven Podcast that we talk about business acquisition stuff sometimes or going over stories of creators that built massive massive businesses like Dave Portnoy or a guy at Kayla Signies. Like we go over stories of people that built hundred million dollar plus creative businesses that they figured out a way to sell because we take those playbooks and try to put them into the portfolio companies. Sweet, man. Oh, yeah. Everyone go give you a follow. And uh, dude, that's been awesome. This has been absolutely rock star interview. Thank you for coming on, brother. This Thanks, dude. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Rockstar. Yeah, man. Rockstar. Rockstar approved. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. And with that, this has been <laughs> Brian Raleigh with the Action Academy Podcast signing off. Hey, real quick. If you're still listening to today's episode, I'm assuming you got value from it. So I need your help specifically. My two-year vision with this show is to help over 1 million people do what they want, when they want, with who they want, and I can only do that with your help. There are two main ways that a podcast grows. One is through ratings and reviews, and the other is word of mouth. If you could please leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as send this to one or two friends that you think would get value from it, we can reach the people that we're looking to reach. Thanks in advance. Talk tomorrow.